There's loads of, 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 of things that we could focus on this morning, but I, I kind of, I was really struck by that little sentence in the middle of that passage there, that uh, verse 26, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. That was the first place where they were recognised as Christians. And I kind of gave today the title in our Young Church in Action series, simply Christians. And uh, began to kind of just mull on that as, as I began to prepare for this and thought, well, what, what is it that characterises a Christian? I came across this by a guy called A.W. Tozer. said, a real Christian is odd in a number of ways. Which kind of ties in with this thing that, that Rob was, was talking about, that actually, to some people, it seems like, ooh, what, what are they on? But listen to, to what Toza says. He says, he feels supreme love for one whom he has never seen. Talks familiarly every day to someone he cannot see. Expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another. Empties himself in order to be full, admits he's wrong so that he can be declared right, goes down in order to get up. He is strongest when he is weakest, his richest when he is poorest, and happiest when he feels worst. He dies so he can live, forsakes in order to have, gives away so that he can keep. Sees the invisible, hears the inaudible, and knows that which passeth all knowledge. Kind of, I, I love that. Kind of lots of little contradictions almost. And yet, as you learn to, to, to walk with Jesus, you see those contradictions so beautifully make sense. Characteristics of a Christian. You know, when this, this word Christian was first coined, it was actually kind of coined as a bit of a term of contempt. Probably because people saw that kind of slightly contradictory seeming behaviour going on. People would talk about the Christian. I remember back in the 1980s, a mate of mine was trying to make it as an actor. He was a real lovey. And he got a job with the Royal Shakespeare Company up in in Stratford. And me and a few of my friends, we thought, well, let's go and encourage him. He's in his first play up at the RSC. And uh, so we thought we'd go up with a bunch of folk from our church. And uh, we were all going to go up to, to watch him playing this fairly small part alongside the kind of RSC giant that was Anthony Cher, a great thespian of the RSC. And when we arrived, this group of about six or eight folk from from Adrian's church, Adrian came and greeted us. And up behind him, Anthony Cher came and said, Ah, the Christians! Hmm. as if to kind of throw us to the lions. It was a real kind of contempt in his voice that these idiots had come 
to see this kind of wannabe actor, and he was so superior. But actually, as these first disciples lived out their faith, that term of contempt was, was redeemed and brought to a place worthy of the name as people began to live out their lives as Christ followers. And I think there are three things, ever so conveniently, in this passage that characterise a Christian, a follower of Jesus, someone that befits Jesus' name. Those three things are God's good news is at the heart of being a Christian. Second thing is that God's grace is evident in a Christian. And the third thing is that God speaks and works through his people as Christians. So let's have a look at those very briefly as we look at this passage this morning. So that first thing is that God's good news is at the heart of what it is to be a Christian. Whilst other religions might seek to please, to try to pacify the gods that they serve, often spending their lives trying to earn their favour, the good news of Jesus that was spreading throughout the known world in verses 19 and 20. Just look at that. Those who had been scattered by the persecution back in chapter 7 and 8, when when Stephen had been stoned to death and people scarpered because they thought, well, if I'm going to follow Jesus, I want to kind of stay alive, so I'd better go back. And if you remember at Pentecost, there were people from all over the known world. I stopped for a minute just to look, and actually... Cyrene is right down on the coast of Libya. It's about a thousand miles from Jerusalem. Go all the way along the coast. You've got to go through Egypt and then round and then up to Jerusalem. Then it's another two, three hundred miles up to, to, to Phoenicia. And then up a bit more to Antioch. And then you've got to go up a bit more and round the corner before you get to Tarsus where Saul had ended up. The good news was spreading all over the known world. And it was good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus who had taken the initiative to come to his creation. The Lord Jesus, our creator, took upon himself our sin, our shame, as they whipped and they stripped and they hung him on high and left him there on a cross to die. But the cross couldn't hold him. Death couldn't hold him. It was hard for him to dance, as that song we sang earlier, with the devil on his back. He took upon himself the unbearable weight of our sin, that we might walk with God. And it's that good news that is spreading in this passage, going all the way up the coast to Antioch, 
affecting those in Cyrene right down, right round the corner past Egypt and into Libya, over onto the island of Cyprus where Barnabas came from. It was this good news that people were hearing and believing. You see, in John's Gospel, right at the very beginning, John chapter 1. I love this Bible. It's got really thin pages and it's hard to get the right one. But John chapter 1, verse 12 says this, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. As John begins his gospel, his story of the good news of Jesus, he sets it out. To all who believed in his name was given the right to be called children of God. And John ends his his gospel account again with this idea of responding to what God has done, not not having to do stuff in order to earn God's favour, but simply to respond. These words are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John 20, verse 31. distinctive in this passage is that God's good news is at the heart of being a Christian. We don't get born a Christian. Even though we live in, a, in a, an ostensibly Christian country, we don't get born a Christian. But each one of us has to respond to God's grace and his goodness And ask him into our lives to to forgive us, to walk with us, and to transform us. We need to have an active choice made to be good news people. So good news is at the heart of being a Christian. Second thing, though, is God's grace is evident In this passage, the second thing that characterises being a Christian is that God's grace is evident. See, Barnabas was sent by the Jerusalem church, the Jerusalem church where kind of things kicked off at Pentecost. They were beginning to organise themselves and and they'd sent Peter and John, hadn't they, up to Samaria to check out what was going among the Samaritans. And here, they say, Barnabas... Could you go and see what's going on up at Antioch, please? Verse 23. When Barnabas arrives and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad. And he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. What is that evidence of the grace of God? Well, I guess we've seen it quite well explained in the experience of Cornelius and his household in in chapter 10 and kind of reiterated into the beginning of chapter 11. Cornelius 
comes in repentance, in faith, and is baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's a first step, if you like, on his journey of showing God's grace in evidence, being moved to say, I need forgiveness. I need to put God at the centre of my life. I know I'm not perfect. Lord Jesus, forgive me. Help me. And being baptised was a, a very important step on that journey. So God's grace being evident, a decision to turn from ignoring God, to, to follow him and acknowledge the sheer undeserved generosity of God's actions. But you know, it doesn't stop there. It's not just about a, a kind of a saying, saying a few words and saying, I believe in Jesus now, good, let's get on with the rest of my life. <laughs> don't stop there. That's the beginning of the rest of our lives. And you see in, in, in verse 23, I've already read it, that Barnabas encourages them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Barnabas encourages them to follow wholeheartedly. This pains me. But I am a half-hearted follower of rugby. I'm even more in pain because I'm a Scot. And those English people... Oh, you're here, aren't you? 20 nil yesterday. Please. But I'm a, I'm a half-hearted follower of rugby. I kind of like it, and that kind of like it extends to probably watching some of the matches during the Six Nations at this time of year, each year. I kind of get into rugby a bit, and I begin to learn a little bit about it, but I'm kind of half-hearted, really. Do you know, I didn't even put my Scotland jersey on yesterday. Probably just as well, actually, but anyway. But I've got a mate called Nick... And Nick is a wholehearted, hardcore rugby fan. He loves his rugby. First time he came to stay, his little boy came to stay in our house when we lived up in Nailsey. And when we lived in Nailsey, all three of our girls had the same bedroom. And it was what colour? Pink. It was the pinkest pink room from Pinkland. And poor old Pete had to stay in this pinkest room from Pinkland. Guess what his dad gave him to hold? A rugby ball. Went to bed saying, I'm a man, I'm a man, I'm a man. <laughs> Pete and Nick love rugby. They record the rugby, they watch the rugby, they play the rugby, they know all the stuff that's going on. And it's not just the Six Nations, it's all through the year when we go and see them. They'll talk about rugby. They're kind of wholehearted in their following of rugby. I might have felt a little bit more wholehearted this morning if a Scotland had whooped England. That might have given me a lift, but as it happened, it was inevitable, wasn't it? 
But you see the point. I'm half-hearted about that. Nick and Pete, they are wholehearted about it. And it comes out. It's a part of them. It shows in, in their who they are. Now, they also love Jesus. And that comes out. And that, that's shown in, in other ways in their lives. They are just amazing people. It's an honour to know them. But for God's grace to be evident in us, in these first Christians, we need to be wholehearted. We need to be asking the Lord daily to be filling us anew. That song that Rob chose, fill us anew, make me, mould me, fill me. So true. Let those words echo around your head as you get up tomorrow morning. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Please, Lord, that my day would be characterised by a wholehearted following of you. It's not that you need to spend the entire day with your heads in the clouds and kind of, oh, Lord, but that your, 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 your demeanour, your, your who you are, is being impacted by the Holy Spirit at work in you. And I guess that the most obvious thing that we refer to is the fruit of the Spirit being evident in us. Let me just read from Galatians chapter 5, a, a paraphrase of the evidence of God's grace being at work in us through the Spirit and its fruit and His fruit. Let me read Galatians 5, 22 and onwards, but a, a paraphrase of it. However, there is another way made possible by the Spirit of the living God. For wonder upon wonder, He wants to form the very character of Jesus in us. The evidence of this is love, an unconquerable benevolence, an invincible goodwill, an attitude of mind and a determination of will that constantly seeks the highest good of every person. Joy, where dark despair is banished and radiant vibrancy comes in its place. Peace, a new sense of well-being is born, not because of self-effort, but as a result of God's undeserved favour and provision. Patience. A resilience emerges which refuses to give up too easily or give in too quickly and is determined to see things through. <coughs> Kindness. A sweetness of temper that shows and puts other at ease and shrinks away from causing unnecessary pain. Goodness where lavish, unstinted generosity is displayed in such a way and to such a degree that clearly God is the source. Faithfulness, 
where instability goes and in its place a reliability takes over. Gentleness. God's authority is recognised in every instinct, passion and impulse is brought under control, his control. And then self-control. You have a person who is able to say no to himself and live with restraint and discipline. Let me just read on. Note carefully that you can't legislate, you can't make this up in the law. Either you allow God to be God in you, or it'll never happen. Let's face it, the God-owned, Christ-controlled Christian will not tolerate in any shape or form the demands of the old way of living with its urgent, driving, baser instincts. If we are now living the Jesus life in the power of the Holy Spirit, there must be incontrovertible and unmistakable evidence of this. Gone are the days when we cherished a vain illusion of ourselves challenging others to a dispute so that we could have an opportunity to prove we are right and the other being wrong. Or that we get jealous of the attainments of others. That's just a beautiful explanation or expansion of the fruit of the Spirit, the grace that is evident when we are wholehearted and not half-hearted. Paul goes on to expand, doesn't he? That the greatest of these fruit is love. 1 Corinthians 13 expresses that beautifully. But of course Jesus, again in John's Gospel, spoke of the defining characteristic of Christians is that they'll know that you are one of mine because of your love. So the second thing is that God's grace is evident in Christians. And the third characteristic is that God speaks and works through his people. God isn't a distant, disinterested God. Third characteristic is that God speaks through his people, that he's not in a disinterested, distant God. I was speaking to someone even this week who has this image of God being like a kind of a cosmic clockmaker that kind of winds up a clockwork clock or maybe a clockwork toy. And when he created the world, he wound it up then he put it down and he let it go. And that's it. Done my bit. God is not disinterested like that. He doesn't just wind up the world and let it go. He wants to speak and work through you and me. Look at Barnabas. He's just a great case study, actually, of all three of these things, because he's a good newsman. God's grace is evident in him, and God speaks and works through Barnabas. We met Barnabas a little while ago, and I think when I first mentioned him, 
back in chapter 4. I said then that I thought this bit in, in chapter 11, oh, if I could be remembered like this, I would think job done. Look at that. Oh, it's gone different page. Here we are. Verse 23. No, verse 24, sorry. Barnabas, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. People remember me like that, I'd be pretty chuffed. A good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. God's work evident in my life. Barnabas is an amazing case study of what it is to be a Christian in this passage. When we first meet him back in chapter 4, he sells a field because he sees a need. And he says, right, I've got something that I could sell, that I could give and put at the apostles' feet and they can use it. He was moved by God to act in a way that he knew he could and he did it. Then we see him again in chapter 9, verse 27, where against the odds, Saul has turned up, he's turned to Jesus, but he turns up at somebody's house, knocks on the door, and they say, you must be joking. And they all run away. But Barnabas says, come on in. He took a risk. Because Saul was well known that he was a nasty piece of work, looking to kill the Christians until he met with Jesus. But Barnabas walked with God and took a risk, brought him in and enabled Saul to grow and develop. And then here we see him being used by God. The Lord was with them. People were brought to the Lord through Barnabas. And actually he has the godly wisdom here as well to see that there are some great things going on and, oh, I think I need some help with this. And so he goes off up to Tarsus and says, I know the man. Let's bring in Paul, Saul, because he can help. And so Barnabas goes off to Tarsus, looks for Saul, finds him, brings him back to Antioch, and for a year together they work to teach and build up the church. God speaks and works through his people. Sometimes we can be a bit kind of intimidated by that, can't we? Because I mean, well, he was in the Bible. He must have been just a kind of a super person. But they were ordinary people like you and me trying faithfully to do what God wanted them to do. We see God at work again through a guy called Agabus. This looks a bit hairy. Agabus stands up in a meeting during that time, presumably during that year. And he predicts that a severe famine would spread throughout the entire Roman world, going down into Judea. God spoke through him. But God spoke in a way that would enable others to respond. It wasn't some kind of a a kind of a magic trick just to, to do it for the sake of doing it, but so that God 
could be glorified, could be seen by the actions that the church were then spurred on to. You see, as this guy Agabus came and said, listen, there's going to be a famine, the church said, well, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? And again, God works through his people because they get practical. If you just think about it for a minute, here's an incredible example of God at work because here in Antioch there are Jews and Gentiles who not many days or months before wouldn't have dreamt of even sharing the same air that was in the room. But here they are, coming together and giving of their money and their resources to help the people who were struck by famine a few hundred miles down the coast. That's amazing. Amazing. That God was at work in all these ways, speaking through Barnabas' life, speaking through the words of Agabus, speaking through the people's response, speaking through that reconciliation. There was a dynamism in that church at Antioch. And actually, I see signs of that dynamism here. I see signs of of God at work in people's lives and in some of the things that, that people are doing and in the way that people deal with other people. I see signs of a really beautiful, dynamic Christian life being lived by so many folks. And we are imperfect. And we need to keep coming back to God and say, Lord, help us. But be encouraged. Because people do see God at work through you. But we need to be a bit careful. Because so often, our actions can be the thing that deter people from coming to God as well. Our words, our attitudes. So we've got to be ever so careful and ask God to really help us. So as we come to the end of our time this morning, three questions. Have you received and believed in the good news of God? Second question, is God's grace evident in you, at home, at work, with your pals, your friends, your acquaintances, in what you do in the life of the church? Third question, are you willing to let God work in your life in the way that he wants to work? To make no mistake, it is costly. It can feel like hard work. It is at times hard work, but it's also the best thing that we can do. It's why we need to keep coming back to God for strength. 
That's why I would urge you tomorrow to take time with, with others in the fellowship, to take time to pray. Those sheets that I, I, I've printed out this morning starts with the Lord's Prayer. Just meditate on the Lord's Prayer. Just, just chew that over in your mind. Speak it out loud if you're in a place where you can just speak it out loud. And just ask God to meet with you. And to take that time with you. But we, we would know that around this county tomorrow, in wherever you are, there'll be people praying throughout the day, turning themselves towards God, but doing it as a part of a body of his people. So please do kind of commit yourself to it by just signing up. You're not signing your life away. You're just saying, this month... I'm going to do this, and I'm going to try and do it at this time. If you don't manage to do it at this time, something comes up, don't beat yourself up. Do it later. Do it just before you go to bed or whatever. Stuff happens. But if you can, try to keep to that time and and set it aside as a discipline tomorrow. Maybe you need to take some time to reflect on, on this passage in that hour or half hour. Maybe you'll use some of the prompts on the sheet to help you. Maybe something entirely different and you just find yourself praying through the list of people in the newsletter. You find yourself praying and you hadn't even planned to pray for a particular thing. Write it down. Remember what you were praying. That would be good.